You're listening to sermon audio from Gospelite Baptist Church. For more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit gospelite.org. Well, I want to put a verse on the screen before I preach this morning out of 2 Chronicles. Um, I, I want to put Luke one thirty-seven on the screen. I want you to see this verse. For nothing will be impossible with God. And that verse is in Luke chapter 1, speaking of the virgin birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the angel told Mary, nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing. When I got saved at the age of 13, I was a, a very dedicated Roman Catholic altar boy in the Catholic Church with aspirations to be a priest one day. Raised in a very deep-rooted religious home, a good home. A home where even though my mom and dad were divorced at a, a young age, they remained friends and they, they, they were great parents to their two sons uh, who, just to, give, just to fast forward 57 and 55 years later, both are pastors of Baptist churches, one in Hot Springs, one in Las Vegas. But back then, we were just two altar boys desiring to be a, a, a Catholic priest. And I sat in a Christian school uh, chapel service at the age of 13. And a man preached the gospel. And I understood that salvation was not church membership or, or, or baptism uh, or, or the sacraments. Salvation was a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I trusted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior that day. And as a result of that, I, I ended up joining the church that that Christian school was connected to. And at age 15, uh, on a Wednesday night, I walked the aisle and I was called to preach. A few people in our church today Remember when I got saved in that chapel service? A few remember when I got called to preach on that Wednesday night. There's a handful left in our church that were a part of a church called Hot Springs Baptist Temple years and years ago, and, uh, and, and remember that. Then I attended Triple S Christian Ranch. That, I think that's where Bryce uh, actually got saved because uh, the Chittam's uh, uh, son-in-law runs the camp there, Luke Bishop. So he got saved this week at camp. Isn't that a great thing? So I was at camp as a teenager in Rosebud, Arkansas, when a man by the name of Steve Robertson preached uh, the camp week that week, I went down at age 16 and got on my knees after having been saved at 13, called to preach at 15, and I was so zealous about the gospel and about serving God and desiring to do something great for God. Nothing will be impossible with God. I got on my face at that altar. I'll never forget it. You know, those watershed moments in everyone's life, right, where you just don't forget those moments, spiritually speaking. Hopefully, everybody's got one or two or three of those. And I just said, God, if I do anything but preach the gospel, just take my life. I, I, I was so consumed and passionate about the Word of God and, and, and teaching and preaching and sharing the gospel at age 16. And I said, God, just take my life. I don't want to do anything but serve you in life or in death. And that was my prayer. It was shortly after that that I got a phone call from my pastor, uh, Dr. Glenn Riggs at the time, who had led me to Christ. And he said, Pastor, or rather Eric, I said, yes, Pastor. He said, Eric, he said, listen, I've had a, a death in the family. He was from Marmaduke, Arkansas. Anybody ever heard of Marmaduke, Arkansas? All right, a couple of you, Marmaduke, yeah. And uh, he said, I've got a death. I've got to go preach a funeral. I had a revival meeting that I need you to preach. I was, eight, I was 16. I preached one sermon in my life for 10 minutes. But nothing will be impossible with God. He looked at me and said, Eric, he said, uh, you're going to have to preach two sermons for 30 minutes long on Monday night and Tuesday. And I said, Dr. Riggs, I, 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 I can't do that. 
He said, well, it's too late. I've already called the pastor and told him that you are coming in my place. I've got this young, exciting preacher boy that would rather uh, die than not preach the gospel, right? And I said, huh? He said, well, you've got two weeks to take that 10-minute sermon and, 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 and increase it to, to, to 20 to 30 minutes. And then another 30-minute sermon. I only knew 10 minutes worth of information from the Bible to preach anyway. So I had to increase that, you know, 50 minutes to an hour. And uh, I said, yes, sir. I drove to Dequeen, Arkansas with a friend of mine by the name of Carl Delaney, who I preached his funeral a couple of years ago here at Gospel Light. Carl drove with me to uh, Dequeen, Arkansas. We pulled up to this little country church, sat about uh, 50, maybe 60 people. Deacons were up front. They greeted me as I got out of the car. They said, we've been praying for you, fasting for you, been begging God for revival. I'm thinking, this is much bigger than I thought. Oh, my soul. But nothing is impossible with God. And so I, I, I stood in the pulpit that first night. I preached my first message for 30 minutes long. And I, I, I experienced for the first time people actually stepping out and walking down an aisle and, 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 and kneeling at an altar and, and praying and seeking God passionately. And then I preached the next night. And for the first time in my life, I experienced what it was like to see people uh, come to know Christ and trust Christ as salvation and, and, and to, to announce their profession of faith to the church family at age 16 because nothing will be impossible with God. In a much more serious way, that's the truth I want to communicate to everyone this morning about what's about to happen next week and what's before us today as a church family. I believe that the word of God in the hearts, in the minds, and in the hands of children and teenagers is an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. I mean, there's, there's absolutely nothing quite like putting the gospel in the hands of a young person and watching God not only transform them for salvation, but then call them to a great work for him. Many are wondering, you know, can students really impact the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Can that really happen? Is that really even possible? Can students really impact their generation for the glory of God? And my answer to that question is a resounding yes. Students can do it. And there are young people in this room, there are young people that are getting on a bus on Tuesday. There's parents and grandparents and, and, and small group leaders that are praying for God to do a transformational work in the next generation. By the way, I don't make a decision at this church, I try not to, without thinking about how will this affect the next generation? And the older I get, listen, I'm no longer 16 or 26 or 36 or 46 or 56. I'm 57 years old. I mean, th- that illustration is, is 40 years old now. In fact, 50 years old. No, 40. 40 years old. And here I stand, and I mean this this morning, passionately begging you to not only pray, but to, but to energize the next generation to serve God in a powerful way because nothing is impossible with God. So my prayer this morning is that God would work among the students of our church, that God would work amongst the students that attend school here in Hot Springs and attend this church, that they would want to impact, that God would burden them to not only uh, attend a youth camp conference this week, but to leave with a desire, a greater desire to impact their generation for the glory of God. So here's the big truth. Here's the big challenge. Here's the big word. And by the way, I think this could cover all of us this morning. And the big truth is this. God desires to raise up students who will impact their generation for Jesus Christ. God desires to do that. 
Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that's the heart of God? That he desires to, to impact students, to raise up students so they could impact their generation for God's glory? So I want to dive into an Old Testament story about a young man whom I named my son after, my second board son, Josiah. It's an incredible story. It's found in 2 Chronicles, beginning in chapter 34. And we want to answer this question this morning. What does it take for a student to impact their generation for the glory of God? What does it take? What are the ingredients? What, what does it take for you to impact the city of Hot Springs, the culture that God's placed you in, the business environment that God's called you to? By the way, this to me, listen, all of us are missionaries. We're all called to be a missionary. Every one of us. Sometimes I think we get caught up in the idea that a missionary is somebody that lives, you know, 10,000 miles away. No, listen, a missionary is every born-again believer who has a neighbor. You're a missionary to the streets you live in on. I'm a missionary to, 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 to the city of Hot Springs. I desire to be a missionary everywhere I go. And we, this morning, have to answer a question. Because we've seen something in church history, all through church history. We can look back and see that there have been many revivals, uh, several that have been started by a young person, by a teenager who took it serious that God had a calling on his life. We also see it, we have the testimony of Scripture. This morning, the sermon I'm preaching is about a teenager, a a boy that at at the age of eight became king. So we have a testimony in Scripture. We have church history behind us, and I desire it to be true of the people of Gospelite Baptist Church as well. We serve the same God, don't we? You see, I'm afraid sometimes we worship culturally with our hands raised high because it feels good, it sounds good, but do we really believe what we just sang? If we serve the same God of Josiah at 8 years of age who became king, and at 16 years of age you saw a massive revival take place, do we believe God can do it again? Do we have the same God? Uh, listen, I'm, I'm praying this morning for God to work on the hearts. I want you to see Second Chronicles chapter 34. Begin reading with me here in verse number 1. Josiah was 8 years old when he became king. Now let's pause there for just a second. 8 years old when he became king. Is there anybody in the building this morning just by chance? I know we have... Kids church, there may not be. But is there an eight-year-old that slipped into the building this morning? If you're eight, probably not. I don't see any eight-year-olds. Anybody eight? Well, I found out that Abigail Horton's eight. And I know that Kelsey Mercer is eight. Candace Connor is eight. Bentley, my grandson, is eight. So this morning, I want you to imagine Bentley being the king. (laughs) Bentley... Bentley Carney, Bentley Carney Capese, or Capese Carney, whatever you want to call him. He is, can you imagine, he is in leadership in the city of Hot Springs. He's going to lead us. We're looking to him for leadership. We're looking for Bentley to tell us what to do, how to go, what's the plan. Bentley, tell us. Think about that. I mean, let's make it real. He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And then look at verse 2. He, Josiah, did what was right in the sight, uh, or rather, in the Lord's sight, and walked in the ways of his ancestor David. He did not turn aside to the right or the left. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, he'd have been 16. Any 16-year-olds in the building today? Got anybody 16? Raise your hand if you're 16. All right, there's a 16-year-old right there, a couple of them. 
Josiah began to seek the Lord, the God of his ancestor David. Let's pause there. Let me give you four ways. They're in your notes. Four ways from this text that we see a student impact his generation for Christ. Number one, students who impact their generation for the glory of God pursue God with passion. Notice in the text, he began to seek God. Now, in order to understand this and the gravity of what's taking place here, which, by the way, oftentimes it's, it's, just, it's just really encouraging and, and almost uh, helpful if we look back at some of what's taking place here. What was leading up to this? Well, if you understand Israel, under Saul and Solomon and, and David, there was one kingdom. But then there was a divided kingdom. And northern kingdom was Israel. The southern kingdom was Judah. And that was because of, they, they forgot, they, they, just, they left God out of the equation. They ran from God. They worshiped idols. And there was war and, and, and just godlessness and all kinds of things as they got away from God, desired to have their own king. War became uh, relevant and prevalent. And all of a sudden now, there's two previous kings leading up to Josiah that were horrible. So Josiah comes on the scene And there's two kings that were possibly the worst kings in the history of Israel. One you find in 2 Chronicles chapter 33. You can look at it with me. His name was Manasseh. He was king for 55 years. Notice in verse 1, he was 12 years old when he became king. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, imitating the detestable practices of the nations that the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. Listen to what Manasseh did. He rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had torn down. He reestablished the altars for the Baals. He made Asherah poles. He bowed in worship to all the stars in the sky and served them. He built altars in the Lord's temple where the Lord had said, Jerusalem is where my name will remain forever. He built altars in all, uh, to all the stars in the sky in both courtyards of the Lord's temple. He passed his sons. Now think about this. He passed his sons through the fire. Manasseh had his own sons killed as a result of his wickedness, practicing witchcraft, divination, sorcery. He consulted mediums and spiritualists. He did a huge amount of evil, a huge amount of evil in the Lord's sight, angering him. So Manasseh caused Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to stray so that they did worse evil. Now picture this. This is prior to Josiah becoming king. Manasseh, his grandfather, Josiah's grandfather, did worse evil than any of the nations the Lord destroyed before the Israelites. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they did not listen. So what Scripture is telling us here is that we have a king leading people to be worse than even the pagan nations around them. That's the context we're coming into 2 Chronicles chapter 34 with. Total evil, total wickedness, total godlessness. And then there's another king that comes on the scene. This would have been Josiah's dad. His name was Ammon, verse, one, or verse 21 of 2 Chronicles 33. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. That's about the only thing that was better about Ammon than Manasseh was he only got to reign two years before some of his you know, servants rose up and killed him. And he did what was evil in the Lord's sight, just as his father Manasseh had done. Ammon sacrificed to all the carved images that his father Manasseh had made, and he served them. He just kept the evil going. He just kept it going. 
So what you have here coming at the Second Chronicles chapter 34 is a picture of 57 years of wickedness, 57 years of godlessness, 57 years of idolatry among the people of God. That's what we're dealing with here when Josiah comes on the scene and he begins, begins to what? Seek God. Everything changes. He breaks the family chain. He says, you know what? It, it hadn't been right for, for 57 years. But Josiah says it's going to be different. This was huge. And this ought to be an encouragement. Listen, to those of you who have not had the privilege maybe of being raised in church or having Christian parents or a father who sought the Lord, maybe, maybe you're looking at it, man, it's just tough and it's difficult for me to see a way to go to Teen Revolution and make an impact because I just don't have the, the family that, that, that others have been blessed with. Well, I want you to know Josiah didn't either. And God used Josiah to transform a generation for Christ. It's an amazing testimony because he began to seek God. And so no matter how deep, no matter how dark, no matter how, how, how your, what your past or your family's past may be, God can use you to, and I'll use this word, revolutionize the present and change the future. I know for me, you know, I, 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 I'm thankful for the heritage that I had in many ways of being in church, but I can tell you, I'm grateful today that my, my brother, the first two preachers in our family, as far as we know, ever in the Capaci family, and though we didn't have it as bad as Josiah had it, I can tell you, we had to make some cha- changes and decide, decide we were going to break some, some chains in our lives that would have held us back, but we served the God of the impossible. And so today, I'm so grateful that my only brother today is preaching this morning in Las Vegas while I preach in Hot Springs, Arkansas even though it's been 40 years removed from those days that we knelt at altars and committed our life to Christ, we're still doing what God called us to do. And may God raise up another Josiah this week to determine to seek God. There's two ways that Josiah sought after God. Number one, he sought God personally. Look again at Second Chronicles chapter 34 and verse 3 on the screen. In the eighth year of his reign, which would have made him 16 years old, in the eighth year, while he was still a youth, Josiah began to seek the God of his ancestor, David. He said, I can lean, I can't lean on, on my past, but I can lean on the God of the present. I don't, have, I don't have leaders to look to. I don't have a father to look to that served God. But I have a God who's been faithful. And I'm going to, to seek God personally. He doesn't leave it up to, to anyone else to seek God for him. He doesn't leave it up to his teachers or his coaches or his parents or even his pastor. He takes responsibility for seeking God himself. He sought God personally. You know what I see as a problem today in many of our Christian homes is so many young people are depending on someone else to seek God for them. And as a result of that, what we are told, and we're told it very, we, we, I, I hear this often, with almost a surety that the majority of young people that are even graduating from Christian schools within the first year of college are turning their back on the church and walking away. Because they had a relationship with God based on their parents. They, 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 they had rules to obey and they did what their parents said to do. But as soon as they got out from underneath that, because it wasn't a personal relationship, they're out of church today. 
We have dozens of those testimonies even through the years that I've pastored here because they never sought God personally. And what I'm doing right now is challenging the young people right now at Gospel Light and those attending Teen Revolution to look what Josiah did. He sought God, number one, personally, and then secondly, he sought God continually. You see, if you read 2 Chronicles 34 and 2 Chronicles 35, what you'll do is you'll have the entire testimony of Josiah from 16 until death. The whole biography of Josiah is two chapters in 2 Chronicles, which, by the way, if you have trouble finding Chronicles, it's just right after 1 Chronicles, all right? So it's not hard to find, and it's not hard to read. It's very exciting couple of chapters in Scripture. It wasn't a sporadic thing for Josiah. He followed God and sought after God continually. Let me say this. It wasn't from Sunday to Sunday. It wasn't from teen revolution to teen revolution. It wasn't from camp to camp. So many times we look at these one-week events and say, man, I just hope things turn around. And then they get back and things kind of go back to normal. And then we wait for the next one and say, man, we're praying for this week to change everything. And it's almost as if we put all of our faith in a Sunday or in a service or in a week of camp. When Josiah knew it had to be minute by minute, day by day, hour by hour. We don't just need God once a week. We don't just need a concentrated effort to come on Sunday mornings and clock in and put our cultural Christianity to the test for one hour of church. We need God as much on Monday morning as we do on Sunday morning, if not more. He sought God continually, day by day. It was a continual thing. You know, I think we sometimes make the mistake of, and by the way, you'll never find in Scripture anywhere where it says, Have you accepted Christ as your Savior? I'm I'm all for accepting Christ. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that phrase. But I think sometimes we look at accepting Christ as this one-time event in our lives. And it's over. We did it. We accepted Christ. Hey, my name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I'm good. I'm good. I'm going to heaven. It doesn't matter how I live. Because I took care of that. I've got my fire insurance. And so somehow we have disconnected accepting Christ from pursuing Christ. And I think that's been a huge mistake. And adults, we've modeled that to our children. And if we model that to our children, then what happens is this. They see our contentment and our complacency, and and they miss out on a deep passion to follow Christ. You see, you can't divorce faith in Christ from desire for Christ. Accepting Christ is one thing. And pursuing Christ is the same thing. When you accept Christ, there's only one decision to make, and that's to pursue Him for all of your days. We must not look at some salvation moment in time as an end-all, be-all. Our whole lives need to be pursuing Christ with all of our hearts. It's not biblical to separate the two. Let me give you an example. The Apostle Paul. We look at his ministry we we see how God used him in such a great way but what was it that drove the apostle Paul the great apostle Paul one of my heroes in scripture no doubt everyone loves to read the epistles and what he wrote and there's so many wonderful verses we've memorized more people I think have memorized the apostle Paul's words in scripture which I know they're God's words but you know I can do all things for Christ who strengthens me who doesn't know that verse so we look at the apostle Paul what was it that motivated him was it planting churches was it the mission field was it writing letters to, to churches? Was it rebuilding the, 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 the churches that were struggling? What was the passion 
that led the Apostle Paul to do what he did. Look at verse 7 of Philippians chapter 3. But whatever I gain, but whatever gain I had. Now stop right there for just a moment. He's just finished talking about all the things. And if you read the first, the three or four verses prior to this, he's just talked about all the things that would make someone successful. So he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. Church family, I ask you today, based on all things, what is it that is more important to you than knowing Christ? Is it making money? Is it a career choice? Well, what is it? Is it, is it a football team? What is more important to you and I than knowing Christ? He says, as I count them as rubbish. In order that I might gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death. Seek God personally. Seek God continually. This is the essence of biblical faith. Seeking God and never stopping. To seek after him. Number two. Students who impact their generation for the glory of God. They value purity with God more than they value popularity with others. Look at First Chronicles chapter 34. Our text again. Verse number three. You'll see here. I want you to see what happens here. So Josiah, he begins in the 12th year to clean Judah up. Notice the phrases here as we read through these these four or five verses. He begins to cleanse Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherah poles, the carved images, the cast images. Then in his presence, I I capitalize some interesting words. Notice on the screen. It says, "In, in the presence of the altars of Baals were torn down. He chopped down the shrines that were above them. He shattered the Asherah poles, the carved images, and the cast images. He crushed them to dust. He scattered them over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He burned the bones of the priest on their altars. He cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. He did the same in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, as far as Naphtali and on their surrounding mountain shrines. He tore down the altars. He smashed the astropoles and the carved images to powder. He chopped down all the shrines throughout the land of Israel and returned to Jerusalem. Look at this. Church, do you see the example here? Josiah begins uh, there in Jerusalem, and he works his way all the way up to Naphtali, up in the north. And and he's going right at the heart of the religious practices of their day, tearing down these these, uh, the Asherah poles and the and the gods of their uh, of their flesh and 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 the and the altars of Baal. He is destroying these and, and 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 blowing them up, if you will. Not a very popular decision, if you ask me. In fact, in just a few years, as far as I could tell with my math, about six years, he completely cleansed the entire country of all the idol worship that was going on, and he turned it into a place of worship of God. Which tells me a couple of things. Number one, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. But you got to start somewhere. And I'm going to come to this in just a moment, but I really appreciate Mo's message last week. A challenge to remind us that we can have a woe is me attitude 
or we can believe that with God, nothing is impossible. If you ask me right now, the attitude of the church, oftentimes I find to be, boy, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. It's just so bad. I think I'll just, you know, kind of hang out till Jesus comes because there's obviously nothing we can do. And so we begin to kind of give up. But Josiah learned that God's righteousness was more important than his own reputation. And when I speak about the righteousness of God, I'm talking about God is holy and God's name is holy and his fame. And I'm talking about God's glory and his honor. Josiah was basically saying, because holiness matters to the character of God, holiness is going to matter to me. It's going to matter to me. It was important to Josiah to live as God told him to live. So let me say and tell you what Josiah didn't do. He didn't do what our preacher preached on last week. He didn't just say, you know what, the culture is so bad, things are so bad, I'm just going to wag my head and and tuck my tail and give up. There's no use in engaging the culture because it's just, it's gone. No, Josiah penetrated the culture with the holiness of God. He penetrated the culture. He said, you know what, I can be different. I'm I'm different than than, than the culture. God's called me to holiness. And sometimes I think the church is trying to become more like the world to reach the world. And it's sad to me. We've lost the, the idea that there's nothing wrong with sticking out as a follower of Christ. Someone who follows Christ is different. We're living holy lives. And I believe based on the holiness of God that we can turn our community upside down for the glory of Christ. Based on that. Because Christ has made such a difference in my life. He has changed me. I've never been the same since age 13. Ever. And everywhere I go, I I want someone to see Jesus in me. I want it to be noticeable. I mean, if, I'm, if, if I have the opportunity to serve down at City Hall uh, every other week in a, in a board meeting with city directors, if, that, if God gives me the opportunity to be a missionary to City Hall, I want you to know I want them to see Jesus in me. If I'm given that opportunity, if I'm not, that's, that's, hey, we'll just keep rolling. But if God allows me that privilege, then my plans are to be salt and light, noticeable. I want to stick out like a sore thumb for Jesus. I want to penetrate a very dark city with the glory of God, the holiness of God, the fame of God, the honor of God. And students, let me say a word to you. Whether it's in your social life or your life with your friends or your dating life, I want to ask you a question. What's holy? What's pure? And how can we live that out in those areas? How can we live out the holiness of God in those areas of our lives? And let's not look outside the church because a revival has never started outside the church. Revivals only start inside the church. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray. It starts right here. Let's be done with this religious exercise of just coming to church and clocking in and clocking out once a week. And and getting into the worship for 10 minutes and then back into our cars And back into our jobs as if we're waiting until next Sunday before we can really worship God again. Can I tell you, that's not true worship. Because true worship includes living as we've been shared by Jeremy. It was great, Jeremy. It's giving and living. 
It's not just about coming to church. It's about living it out throughout our weekdays and throughout our lives, putting our reputations aside, aside and saying we want the righteousness and the holiness of God to be displayed at gospel life. Number three, students who impact this generation for the glory of God realize that without God's word, we are powerless, but with God's word, we are unstoppable. Look with me at the text. This is awesome. Second Chronicles chapter 34, things got really good. I mean, listen, things are happening. These idols were destroyed, and, and as you read the text, you'll find that he really did crush these idols and these altars, and he turned them to powder, so there's a mess. But he's going through the rubble, and notice what they find. When they brought out the silver that had been deposited in the Lord's temple, the priest Hilkiah, he finds a book. It's crazy. He finds this book, and it was the law of the Lord. It was written by the hand of Moses. Consequently, Hilkiah told the court secretary, Shepha, I found a book. (laughs) You're not going to believe it. In the rubble, underneath all the mess, I found a book. And it's the book of the law in the Lord's temple. And he gives, the, he gives the book to Shaphan. Now, just a little context here. Some believe, scholars kind of debate this, but some believe that this was the first five books of the Old Testament. Others believe it was just the book, book of Deuteronomy. But whichever it was, in fact, if it was the book of Deuteronomy, it kind of makes sense because that book is a book that tells us, remember the commands the Lord has given. If you remember the commands the Lord has given, this will happen. If you don't remember the commands the Lord has given, this will happen. Kind of like Mo preached last week, you know. That's what Deuteronomy is all about. So they find this book. Now look at verse 16. Shaphan took the book to the king, Josiah. And he reported, your servants are doing all that was placed in their hands. They've emptied out the silver that was found in the Lord's temple. They've given it to the overseers and those doing the work. Then the court secretary, Shaphan, told the king, the priest Hilgiah gave me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. So here Shaphan is reading this book. And all of a sudden... It clicks with Josiah. It's the first time Josiah's ever really heard the book read. And it clicks with him. He's like, oh, my goodness. And the Bible says that he tears his clothes as he hears the word of God read out loud. Church, do you see the significance to what's happening here? Josiah realizes that for 57 years, the book of the law of the Lord had been ignored. This law of God had been ignored, and it clicked with him. And he tears his clothes, which is a sign of grief and sorrow and repentance and confession. Then notice what Josiah does in 2 Chronicles chapter 34, beginning in verse 29. So the king sent messengers. He gathers all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. Right after he tears his clothes and, and, and just confesses, the king goes up to the Lord's temple with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, as well as the priests and the Levites, all the people from the oldest to the youngest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the Lord's temple. Then the, Lord, then the king stood at his post. He made a covenant in the Lord's presence to follow the Lord and to keep his commands, his decrees, his statutes with all his heart, all his soul, in order to carry out the words of the covenant written in this book. He had all those presents in Jerusalem and Benjamin agreed to it so all the inhabitants of Jerusalem carried out the covenant of God the God of their ancestors so Josiah removed everything that was detestable from all the lands belonging to the Israelites and he required all who were present in Israel to serve the Lord their God throughout his reign they did not turn aside from following the Lord the God of their ancestors before this before this 57 years of idolatry 
Now, the next generation turned around for the glory of God. This pumps me up. This is why I'm going at 57 years old to a youth conference. What's a guy like me going up there for? Haven't I got better things to do than invest in the next generation? Look at the condition of our country. Look at the idolatry, the wickedness. We need some young people to stand up for the glory of God and say, I'm going to be a student who pursues Christ passionately. I need to be a student who's going to live by the word of God. Oh, listen. You say, Pastor, you're all worked up. Well, this is how you preach to teenagers, so I feel like this is maybe what adults need. Believe me, you don't get up to teenagers and just talk with a monotone voice. This is the first sermon of the conference, so I'm sorry. I'm pretty pumped up right now. The people are responding to the teaching of God's word. And what happens is it's not just external change. It's internal change. Listen, I think sometimes we like the external change that comes, you know, when we come to church and, and we look the part. <laughs> but can I tell you, it's not just about looking the part. It's about being real. And that comes from the inside. The word of God leads to two things. First of all, it leads to confession. Personal confession and corporate confession. Just saying, God, listen, I'm not going to point my fingers at anybody else. It's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Do you feel like it's somebody else's fault? Do you feel like, you know, just kind of, well, you know, I'm, I'm doing okay. Kind of like was already presented to us. No, I'm weak. I need next week as much as those teenagers do. I need to hear the preaching of God's word. I, I confess that I've, I've become complacent. I sometimes become dull of hearing when the word of God is preached. Am I right? Are we all there? Can we confess that together? And then it's corporate prayer. It's coming together and realizing that it's, it's the church that needs to stand up and recognize that we have failed our community by not getting involved. We're sitting on the sidelines and typing our essays and Knowing more about the Bible, but not living it out in the community, day by day, hour by hour, in every Walmart aisle, at every drive through at McDonald's when you're getting a coffee, because that's the only thing worth getting there. <laughs> just kidding. It is good. We got fries yesterday. Okay. I just got two coffees today. That's, that's living it out everywhere. And I'm challenging everyone here today to translate this in our world's culture. Young people, can I say a word to you? There is no way you're going to be able to impact your community, your generation with the gospel of Christ and spend more time on social media than in the word of God. You can't do it. It's just, just it's not going to happen. We cannot, and I'm not against social media. I'm not against Xbox and whatever else. I, I, I think Xbox is still around. I know PlayStation, if that's still around, I don't know. But I know this. That if you spend more time on PlayStation and Xbox than you do in the Word of God, you're not going to impact your culture for Christ. It just can't happen. Watching TV, the Internet, texting. When our minds are focused only on that, we will not impact our generation for the glory of God. We're fooling ourselves if we think that we can accomplish this without a deep knowledge of the Word of God. We've got to get in the Word. We've got to study the word. We've got to get in the word. We've got to have love for the word. We've got to have reverence for the word of God and spend time memorizing the word of God. Number four, and I'll close. 
Students who impact their generation for the glory of God believe the gospel is the only hope for their generation. It's the only hope. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 35 as we close the message, beginning in verse 1. Now, Josiah had done a lot. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, we've read some pretty incredible things. This, this, this young kid is killing it. Wow, God is with him, and, and God's hand is upon him, and it's amazing. And look at all that's been accomplished, but he's not done yet. There's one more thing. Look at verse 1 of chapter 35. Josiah observed the Lord's Passover and slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the first month. What's the significance of that? Well, somehow the people of God had forgotten the Passover for all these years. And the Passover was a celebration. It was a festival. And it was a a reminder of what God had done. He delivered them from Egypt and from the bondage of slavery and, and and brought them into a new place. And so every year they had this great festival, this celebration called the Passover. And it was a promise of what was to come. It was all a promise of of, of what was to come. And and Josiah, I don't know if he knew exactly when it was going to come, but Josiah knew it was going to come because one day the Passover lamb would come in the form of God's son. Amen. And give his life on a cross and save us from the bondage of sin. And they had missed that. And so Josiah says in verse 1, we're going to observe the Lord's Passover. In fact, He did it in such a way that in verse 18, if you'll notice on the screen, Scripture says no Passover had ever been observed like this since the days of the prophet Samuel. None of the kings of Israel ever observed a Passover like the one that Josiah observed with the priests, the Levites, and Judah, the Israelites who were present in Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem. Never before had a king ever put a greater emphasis on the Passover, ever. We see in this that Josiah is an example. I mean, there were many examples before Josiah. There were many examples after Josiah. Kings before Josiah, kings after Josiah. But he became an example of someone who's going to make a difference for the kingdom of God. Josiah is an example in the story, no doubt about it. Prayerfully, I'm an example this morning. Hopefully, you're an example. But can I tell you, Jesus is the hero of the story. And that's why this is the most important part of the whole sermon. Because observing the Passover was literally saying, hey, we are going to acknowledge the fact that there is a plan that God has to bring about a Savior. And Josiah knew that he was a a part of the long plan that God had to bring this promise to a reality. And the Passover was a picture of something that was coming much greater, and that was Jesus Christ. Now, you and I, we don't look forward to Jesus. We look back 2,000 years ago when Jesus came. Amen. And there have been, since then, many preachers and revivals and, and, and men who have stood in pulpits. I'm just one of hundreds and thousands of men who have stood up and preached, probably from this text. But I want my life to point to Jesus Christ this morning. I want our church to point to Jesus Christ, the gospel to change our culture and our generation. Why? Because the gospel is truly the only hope we have. It's not in politics. It's not going to be in, 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 our hope is not in the Christian school. Our hope is not even in a Sunday morning church service. The only hope we have is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is, Christ is our only hope. And I think that if we put all of our eggs in that basket, (laughs) 
All of them. I mean, there's a lot of things we can know. And I'm all for knowing as much as you can know about church growth and, and, and theology. And I'm all about learning more. But I can tell you, you don't have to be smart to believe this. You don't have to have a lot of money to believe this. You don't have to be famous to promote this. Anybody can say Jesus Christ is the only hope for this country, period. Let that soak in. We must be a church that pours our life into the next generation so that the next generation continues to point others to Jesus Christ. And here's my prayer, and I want to put it on the screen, that God would raise up students at Gospel Light who will revolutionize their generation, this church, our culture, and all nations for the glory of Christ. Do not underestimate that if our kids get a hold of this, it could be a game changer. It could be a game changer. I, I feel like in some way, this is what happened to me when I was 16. I got a hold of this. And something happened. And I was never the same again. And, and it just, it's a fire that has never gone out. It's, it, it's, I just can't shut it up. I mean, I, 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 my prayer for these young people this week is that God would stir up a fire in their hearts that would not just go out but last continually. And next year's Teen Revolution is not about we need revival in our youth group, but let's continue the revival that never stopped since Teen Revolution. What I'd like to do is in just a moment when we stand is if you're a young person or a, or a worker that's going to Teen Revolution, before we stand, I want to ask you, if you're going to Teen Revolution and you're in the building or you're a worker, would you stand for just a moment if you're going or you're a teenager or whatever? Just stand up in the auditorium. You're going. You're going to be there. Would you step out into the nearest aisle and just step into the aisle? Not, yeah, come on. And I want to do this as our invitation. I want to ask those around them to just come around them and lay hands on them and pray for them. Let's just have an invitation of prayer over these that we are in this building right now that are going to Teen Revolution. And I remember that this happened to me when I was at Brooklyn Tabernacle. I went on a Tuesday night to a prayer meeting, and Jim Symbol, the pastor of the church, said, if you're a guest today, stand up and step into the aisle. We want to pray over you. Man, I was nervous. I thought, what is he doing? I hope you're not nervous that we're going to have prayer in church. This is what it's all about. Vince Russo. Vince, you're how old? 74 at the moment. You're going to be 75 in a week? 75 in a week. And Vince Russo is going to play the electric guitar this week for some 16-year-old Josiahs. And he's going to stand on that platform. And Vince, you and I both know we don't have as much time as they have. That's why you're taking a week off of work with no pay and driving up to St. Louis, Missouri because he believes the next generation is the only hope. Christ is the only hope, but the next generation is the hope to carry that to the, to the, to the nations. And so I'm going to just pray, and then after I pray, we're going to stand, and Jordan's going to lead us in God of revival. We're going to pray over these, these young people, and then we'll have a couple of things at the end. Father, I love you so much. I thank you, God, for the word of God, for the power of God, for the people of God. Father, I pray that you would use this moment that we have together to gather around these that are going in the building and to pray over them and with them and for them 
to be either used to impact those going as workers or to be changed and stirred as a young Josiah, a young man, a young lady, the next generation of leaders and pastors and deacons and elders and mayors and governors and presidents in our nation. Father, I'm praying that over this group of young people right now, God, that you would do a work in their lives, that they would see themselves as as nothing's impossible with God. Father, please, please, God, would you please meet with us this morning in prayer. And God, do what only you can do, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and gather around these and just pray as God leads.